David B. Bowl, author of Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth, a memoir, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Well, well, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life. Now, with less dogma and more bite, this is episode 36. We'll call it Parallel Universes. We've got David Bowl here talking about his brand new book, very excited to share that with you. We've got a little bit of info on the upcoming International Conference of Secular AA in Toronto, Ontario, August 24th to 26th, 2018. And I got some music on deck for you by an artist by the name of Rochester, aka Juice. He's got a brand new song called Grateful. Thought it would suit our purposes. So, February 15th, 2018, the launch date for a new memoir about addiction and recovery called Parallel Universe, A Story of Rebirth. I mentioned David Bowl is going to join us. Like all of us, he has an incredible personal adventure to share. Everyone confronts certain demanding existential questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? Who are these others? My personal sense of identity has been a prerequisite to a sane life, to having integrity, and a satisfying, purposeful life. Who's my biological mother? I asked my adoptive mother as a child. David recounts on page 16 of Parallel Universe. Whew. What are the catalysts of the life we lead? Our overachieving, underachieving, our addiction, our recovery. Duality and addiction, and later duality and recovery, are a dance that any of us have to learn and navigate. How much more challenging is an integrated sense of identity if you've been adopted, if much of your past is locked away from you in somebody else's filing cabinet? David writes, Two parallel universes, two realities. I was marked for life, destined by my circumstances to have my perception warped from the get-go. Another writer, uh, Anne Fletcher, needed some addiction help late last century. So I'd guess two things about her. First assumption, she's a writer and doesn't have an executive-style health care benefit plan whereby treatment costs of any kind would not be prohibitive. I'm a writer. I don't have a fancy employer-sponsored health plan. Uh, Secondly, it's natural that she might want to channel her lived experience into a narrative. That's what writers do. From treating obese patients earlier in her life, she penned Thin for Life, Fletcher Champion Medicine, Folk Wisdom, and the personal experiences from people she called Masters of Weight Control. Thin for Life comes from the consumer lifestyle wellness genre, Many of those titles flirt with uh, bestsellerness. Hers became its own franchise. She had follow-up books and helped hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, now, channeling that uh, thin-for-life formula, Anne M. Fletcher found in her own life challenges a new project, her 2001 Sober for Good. She writes, Along the way, I tried some of the conventional solutions for alcohol problems. Though I was impressed with how helpful AA was for others, and I'd benefited from the support, 
I'd come home from a meeting feeling like the odd one out. My take-responsibility attitude, along with my tendency to challenge the status quo and want to do things my way, did not mesh with the program's 12-step philosophy. I wasn't in denial. I was looking for help, but felt I had nowhere to turn. So, I crafted my own, rather lonely path to resolving my troubles with alcohol with the help of some open-minded therapists who did not demand that I become abstinent or that I attend a recovery group, but respected my ability to make the decision to stop drinking and encouraged me to develop my own strategies to do so. Sober for Good went on to quote and interview people in long-term recovery, provided consumer guides or an overview of the recovery world. In 2013, she followed up with Inside Rehab, after doing more research. You see, as a respected writer, she was invited to observe and participate in both in and outpatient programs, and she reported her findings from the campuses of Hazelden, Karen, and Promises, as well as other uh, well-known facilities. I think it's great that people investigate, criticize, and report on addiction recovery modalities. Skepticism isn't cynicism. Yes, it's easy to find fault, like there's a reward for it, but you and I know enough about recovery and addiction to separate those attention-getting naysayers from uh, sincere outcries from people who want to help addicts find the help they need. Storytelling, be it alcoholic to alcoholic, eyeball to eyeball, or in the form of print or documentary or social media, accounts of one of us leading with our weakness and telling our story and sharing our heartfelt opinions. This is one of the best lessons learned from the 1939 Alcoholics Anonymous. Our experience can empower others. So similarly to Anne Fletcher and many of us, uh, David uh, wasn't a by-the-book alcoholic that fit nicely into a by-the-book recovery. First, David's worldview didn't fit the popular 12-step recovery narrative of an intervening higher power that could and would if he were sought. Secondly, imagine how one takes inventory or reconciles one's past where nurture happens in an adoptive family home and nature is out of the reach of your own personal scrutiny. So in just a moment, David's going to step up to the microphone and share his story. He's going to talk about writing Parallel Universe, a story of rebirth. We've talked with other authors uh, on this podcast. Uh, I hope that hasn't gotten old for you. It never gets old for me. This one's special because David's a friend of mine. I met him the way I met most of you, online and then in the rooms. David and I and some of you were among the 300 who attended the first ever international gathering of secular AA members in Santa Monica in 2014. Since then, I've been to meetings in his hometown. He's been to meetings in my hometown. Uh, Speaking of international gatherings, right now at the time of recording episode 36 of Rebellion Dogs Radio, 
it's David's book launch today, yes, but we are also six months and nine days from the International Conference of Secular AA 2018 in Toronto, Ontario. Hashtag on to Toronto. I happen to be your host committee outreach coordinator. I work with Thomas. He's the outreach coordinator on the International Secular AA Board. And I'm saying this because I'm interrupting this broadcast to invite you, if you would be willing, to be a local liaison for your home group or the larger agnostic atheist freethinker groups in your neighborhood or your region. Uh, Send me an email and maybe also a physical address too. Uh, Our international website, the www.secularaa.org, has all of the meeting locations, but doesn't have contact information. And that's what I need, if you would be so kind. Uh, I'll send you updates, and maybe you can share that with your own group, or if you go to your uh, district table or inner group, share it with them too. The secular AA community, not everybody in our community belongs to a atheist agnostic meeting. So we want the message to get out there to anyone, anywhere, and we could use some help. The conference is just around the corner. The host committee is ready to help you plan your trip. Check our Facebook page or our Twitter. There'll be information about Toronto. While we're meeting August 24th to 26th, Also going on in Toronto is the Canadian National Exhibition. What is that? Well, maybe you want to go. Just ask. Maybe you'd like to take an extra day uh, to attend exhibitions at some of our art galleries or uh, a museum, all of which are in walking distance from the host hotel, the Toronto Marriott Eaton Centre Hotel. Uh, Niagara Falls is just, uh, it's like an hour away from Toronto. Maybe you want to go there. Canada's Wonderland is a short drive away. We've got local intel on how to get to the hotel, whether you're coming by bus, car, plane, train. Happy to share it. And if you could help us, you could share some of that information with your local meeting. Toronto's an expensive northeast city, uh, but... Uh, Whether you're doing this on a first-class budget or a starving artist budget, there's uh, lots to do in Toronto. So check the show notes at rebelliondogspublishing.com or come register at secularaa.com and send us an email and we'll get in contact with you. Now let me tell you something about uh, this book of David's Parallel Universe. I sometimes take public transit and on my way to Toronto Intergroup, I was so compelled by this story about David landing in India that I missed my stop. In fact, I, w- I went three stops past where I was supposed to get off and didn't mind at all walking six or seven blocks back to where I had to go because it's that kind of book, hard to put down. Uh, just like the Anne Fletcher quote I read, David didn't feel right at home in AA. Even though he desperately needed our help, he felt different. He was different. We're all different. That's something I trust Anne Fletcher found in her research. There is no universal solution. 
there are instead many paths and many absolutely fascinating stories to be shared. If you don't know David, he holds a master's in addiction studies, and he's a member of the National Association of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors. I'll let him tell you how that happened. Here's David on the phone and me at my desk talking about life and recovery and his new book, Parallel Universe, A Story of Rebirth. David, you're not just a uh, memoir writer. You're a, a rabid consumer of memoirs, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, is, it has been what has sustained me throughout this investigatory process in my life. And ultimately, it's not just about that connection, right? It's about reading someone's story and being able to connect with maybe not necessarily the experience and behaviors, but the thought processes that go beyond behind those those experiences but also you know to me memoir is one of the greatest tools at stigma reduction that we could possibly come across right we think we know how to reduce the stigma of alcoholism for example by calling it a disease and treating it medically and all the rest of that yes those things are great but there's nothing like someone standing up bearing themselves to the world and telling them how they work through their experience, strength, and hope and how great their life is today to reduce that stigma ultimately and allow people to venture out and to have their own courage to do what they need to do. Yeah, it's the great uh, paradox of a recovery community, be it sort of a 12-step or any place where two uh, people who have uh, suffered uh, share together. We lead with our weakness. Our weakness is our strength. And that comes out in writing Absolutely. a memoir, doesn't it? In a beautiful way, usually. And it does, and you have to do it without considering who your audience might be, as you can imagine. I mean, yeah. You yourself are a writer. Mm -hmm. You've been in the public eye for a while. You have to do what you need to do, no matter who's going to write the book or who's going to read the book. Had, had I worried about what my father-in-law might think about this book, I wouldn't have written most of it. That, that's not what this is about. This is for those individuals <clears throat> in need of that connection, in need of that stigma reduction, in need of that that ultimately that affirmation that they too can get through it absolutely many things in your past that you're sort of sharing in terms of your own process addiction is one of them being mm -hmm. adopted is another one that that's another sort of common experience because we had a whole mm -hmm. generation where the whole community it was like uh, sorry to use such a visceral term it was like gang rape, the whole society would sort of encroach upon a, an unwed mother and encourage uh -huh. her, you've got to give it up for adoption. I mean, it was collective uh, conspiracy to behave well a certain way. Well and, and it's, hard, it's hard to believe looking back upon that, and I don't want to equate that to, with some other atrocities that have occurred in, in, in our lifetimes or in mankind's history, but it's hard to look back and think that there was a time when that was okay. Right? Yeah. And in doing that, we need to be really careful, right? Because I can sit back and I can say, well, I'm really enlightened now compared to that generation. Or I'm really enlightened compared to those professionals, but I have to be careful with that, right? Because as we know, we only know a little, right? We only know a little and we have to keep working at this. Right. Uh, do you have uh, your book in front of you? I'm going to ask you to read something for everyone listening on. I do, yes. Okay, if you could 
turn to page, on my advanced copy, it's page 110. Just to give some background, I, I want to read this passage because you do such a brilliant job of describing that betwixt and between, that knowing you have a problem, but how are you ever going to stop like you just you make it so personal the background to this because we're jumping into the middle of the book is you've succeeded in business you've retired you're a success you're a member of a yacht club you race in boating races you're master of your universe uh, you're a good time charlie there's drinking uh, you know after the race you you drink until your uh, crew has had enough and they go home to their families and then you drink until uh, the bar staff kick you out. You end up being at home watching Intervention on TV thinking, too bad those poor bastards, right? <laughs> and That's you, exactly right. Yeah, your life looks great from the outside, uh, but you've got demons. And this sort of describes part of that pathway. I, I like your, your, the way you teed that up. Ultimately, you're right, that there, there was this facade, and now we're going to go behind the facade because this is what reality really looked like toward, for me toward the end of this, this journey that I was on. And here's yeah. where it starts on page 110. I would crash into the bed beside my wife like a drunken, clumsy bear. In the morning, the smell of booze coming out of my pores was so strong that even I could smell it. My wife was awake. My wife's eyes were tired, sad. She was silent, but she didn't have to say anything. I wish for her to go away. Let me stay in bed with his head that seemed to be filled with rocks and seesaws. There was tightness in my chest, anxiety so overwhelming that for a moment or two I thought how much better it would be if I were dead. I dragged myself to the shower. Have you ever been afraid to look in the mirror? It's a human instinct to glance at any reflecting surface. From our beginnings as babies, it's a natural curiosity, this need of confirmation of our existence by looking at ourselves. But I didn't want to confirm my existence. I brushed my teeth, gargled half a bottle of scope. I scrubbed myself as if I had rolled around an excrement the night before, which I had in a way. I couldn't afford to smell like booze all day. 20 minutes scrub, head to toe. It was like Lady Macbeth trying to wash her hands of invisible blood spots. I could still smell it, even though I'm sure I've washed out every single molecule of that damn scent and evidence of me murdering myself. There were moans, too. I didn't understand where they were coming from at first. It sounded like some wounded animal. The moans were coming from me. I was moaning, not just from the pain and discomfort of the crushing hangover. I was moaning from feeling helpless. I felt so alone, again. I could stay in the shower for hours, I thought. I didn't want to leave the bathroom. I didn't want to see my wife's sad, reproachful eyes or my children who knew too. Children know things. Why wouldn't they hate me too? I didn't want to be surrounded by hate, yet I brought it all on myself. My children were not hateful people and neither was my wife. So it wasn't like I was basing this on some kind of evidence, but I was projecting and I hated me. The thing on the wall, I still managed to avoid it. It was like a black hole trying to suck me in. Look, look, look. I finally looked. I don't know what I was expecting to see there. The monster that lived inside me? My eyes, the colors of the American flag, blue pupils, red whites. I was a monster. The mirror didn't lie. I stood in front of it and stared. The self-loathing was now engulfing me in its flames finitely. Why, did I, why do I do this? What's wrong with me? I could see nothing inside those eyes, just emptiness. I wasn't even there. Where was I? Who was I? 
everything I felt now confirmed what I've always believed. I didn't belong. I was a mistake. I was a stake, a mistake to myself. I poured Visine into my eyes until I finally washed out all the red. I looked at my face and it was puffy, bright red, as though the alcohol vapor was catching fire as it jetted from my pores. How would I make it through the day given how I feel? The actual race was later on. I couldn't imagine even making it to the shore. It was ridiculous. There was no way I was going to be able to pull it off. I was convinced I would have a heart attack any moment now. And if not my heart, then my liver would explode, my guts. It felt as if something inside me was broken or was in the process of breaking, not just emotionally, but physically too. I had to stop drinking. How could I stop drinking? Stopping drinking would mean facing myself in the mirror every day. No buffers, just reality, clear and simple. No running away from it, from myself, from anything. And the sad, abandoned bastard in my head, he just screamed louder and louder that I am worth nothing and that I'm a piece of shit. I've been able to quiet him down here and there with booze, get him so drunk he'd pass out, but sober, he would be back and I was sure he would drive me to madness. But what was this if not madness, standing in front of the mirror and looking at myself and feeling like a soulless monster? This was precisely what monsters did, destroyed their lives, their loved ones' lives. I dragged myself away from the mirror. I opened the door to the sun-dampled house. Hello! My greeting was fake happy, too strained. And I was right. They could tell right away. Our miseries reflected in each other's eyes. How's everybody doing? I said in a voice that could replace a cheerleading squad. Great, Dad. Great. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. That's good, said Vicky, a note from strain in her voice. The good was flat. We're done with breakfast, so I'm going to take the kids to the club, she said. I was happy to be left alone. I could moan in peace. I wouldn't have them around me witnessing my overwhelming shame. My self-loathing. They knew I was not as I pretended to be. They knew I was a hypocrite, a man professing that his family was the most important thing in the world, but drinking his face off of the yacht club instead of spending time at home with them. They probably disliked me as much as I disliked myself. How could they feel otherwise? You were overacted. Look, what a beautiful day. Look at this lake. Look at the piranha. How much stronger and more beautiful she looks compared to the other scows. Look at your wife. She's not mad at you at all now. She's waving and smiling, and your family has been helping you all day to get the other family members and spare sails and parts to the race. Why did you ever think they hated you? My brain was back to its jovial, pre-drunk mood. It talked bullshit at me, and I bought it because it was easy. More delusion, and delusion was where it was most comfortable for me. The bullshit was working. I was stronger, healthier. My head was no longer a bag of rocks. I didn't think I was really that bad. Okay, so I overdid it the night before. So what? I'll take it easy tonight, I thought to myself, and opened the first beer of the day. I watched my wife get ready for the beverage dispersal, which is where she and the other wives would throw us cold beers at the finish line. I was cheered up by the thought she couldn't have been that upset at me before if she was okay with this part of the ceremony. Obviously, I imagined it all. I was starting to feel better about everything now. I was not a monster. I was a fun guy, a great athlete, and people loved me. I felt there was a need for celebration of that, of the fact that I was so fortunate, a celebration of life. Life was so short. I needed to up this feeling of joy, make it euphoric. I would take this feeling as high as I could. I knew what to do to achieve that. Wow. I, I don't know if you knew it when you were writing it or how many times it was uh, edited, but you uh -huh. really, uh, as the reader, I'm taken to this moment of despair, this moment of reckoning the morning after uh -huh. when you think this is it. This has got to be the end. This guy's got to pack it in now. 
right? He's on the verge of losing his family, everything. He knows it. And, you know, he's feeling such self-loathing. He's just going to say, stop right now, cancel the race. Uh, I've got to confess, I'm going to rehab. Mm -hmm. But you didn't, did you? How much longer would it be before you found uh, sobriety from that that moment before the race? Interesting. You should ask that question. You're right. You, you, one would think that, and, and there's, a, there's a term in some rooms of 12-step recovery called incomprehensible demoralization. You would think that that point should have prompted anyone with even a partially clear mind to take some action to, to get rid of that, but it didn't. It, it didn't. And as a matter of fact, it took me almost, oh boy, I'm going to say almost another year mm-hmm. of that behavior, of getting up that daily and ongoing self-loathing before I was able to, to, to find any hope or any clarity in, in having to do something differently. Which included that, heart, that, heart attacks, nearly being dragged off an airplane, uh, you know, oh, yes. I, yeah, more looking indeed. at it from the outside, certainly as if one is a, a reasonable person and pragmatic, one would say, boy, you know, you have all the evidence you need to, to do something there. And ultimately you'd be right. Yeah. But, but what we know, what we know is that addiction doesn't reside in that prefrontal cortex. It resides in emotion. It resides in lack of safety, right? It, it, it doesn't have a chance to get to that reasonable brain part because it is so irrational and so delusional. There's no, there's oftentimes, and our, and our brothers can either attest to this or they're no longer with us and not able to attest to this. It takes us down a path that we can't recover from. That transition that you described from going from that total demoralization, it's all over, I, I've got to try something new, to the alcoholics rationalization uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Gord Gardner he uh, spoke at um, I was at a conference in Calgary uh, put on by the Canadian Center of Substance Abuse and Addiction and uh, researchers were there policymakers were there people from the treatment industry was there and he was talking from a peer-to-peer point of view and he said you got to understand that not drinking is illogical to the addict mm-hmm. or alcoholic. You're, you're offering mm-hmm. an illogical solution to the problem because your logic started taking hold. It, it took over the situation. Look, she's not mad. I'm a winner, right? Everything, mm-hmm. you know, I owe it to these people to be a good time, Charlie. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and, as, as you've noted, it's, it's, it's beyond that, right? Because it goes to the emotion. I mean, think of it. I mean, we've just described the emotional swings that happen, right? And I use the term euphoria in, in the book, and I just read it to you. Right? It's either euphoria or it's incomprehensible demoralization. There is nothing in between. And that's the point that we get to that, that makes things so, so crazily dangerous because there is no logic in that. It is nothing but delusion. Yeah, uh, but there. How do you tell someone that when they're in the cups, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's no short answer to that. But but reasoning with that individual is, is, is something we try to do often, and we we have lots of evidence to know that that doesn't often work. Yeah, and and then you you find uh, sobriety. You become a total keener, whatever it takes, 
you, you feel like you're sort of born again in the sense that, you know, uh, your wife was like a day away from leaving you when you finally decided to go into treatment. And you can see that you're getting a second chance. Uh, but you still have some things to reconcile from your past. You don't get along with everything that uh, AA philosophy uh, sort of states as a red line. <laughs> you go, well, I'm on the other side of your red line. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of the absolutes about uh, looking after our side of the street. Like, how does someone abandoned by their mother, so to speak, later adopted at the age of six, how does someone say, what was my fault in that, right? Like, it just... Exactly. AA program is designed for people of privilege, white, upper-middle-class American men who have never sort of, uh, you know, faced anything other than advantage. But anyone who's not in that category, demoralization at depth, isn't healthy at all. So you've got that part of AA that you have issues with. You still have not reconciled completely your feelings about abandonment. And then you get to, I'm going to bring you to chapter, it's called Pain, 173. It's from the chapter Pain. <clears throat> I need to clear my head. I'm sitting here staring at the lake. I'm taking deep breaths. I'm protecting myself. I need the sanctuary. The default is anger, frustration that I'm powerless, that other people have made decisions for me that other people decided I was going to be part of a social experiment of forcing unwed mothers to give up their children. Other people had not only my birth certificate, but my entire history. I had to fight for it to be able to see it. My wife's lineage can be traced back to the 1500s. Why was it so difficult for me to obtain a piece of paper showing when I was born, what I weighed as a newborn? A signature of some random social worker sealed my fate for so many years. Sometimes I'm full of rage when I think about these things. I hate being powerless. Why shouldn't I know? I'm powerless over alcohol, sure, but to, to not be able to have power over my very own being, my life and my history, that's an atrocious theft. Now in sobriety, the rage is short-lived. The search for my roots is me taking the power back. The search is my control. The search is me trusting the higher power of my reality. Now, my reality is that I'm on an endless quest. I will never know the whole truth of my biological parents being dead, but I have all these supports. I have people in my life. I can go into the deepest darkness and come out alive. At the age of six, I decided there's no one in the entire world I could talk to. Today, I can talk to the world. I'm talking to you. Uh, and there's a lot in between there. Uh, I mean, I, I do not pretend to understand uh, what you went through, but uh, I... You know, I, I'm moved by your description of the process. I mean, everyone has mommy and daddy issues of some description, not to diminish the anguish of, uh, uh, you know, reconciling adoptive life. You talk about entering, finding out you have siblings uh, okay. and and this sort of fear of going to meet them and you you use a word to describe a feeling you have entering their life like they're your blood relatives and you feel like maybe you're an intruder in their life mm -hmm. can you talk Absolutely. about that a little bit well you bet you bet and i'll try to keep it concise uh, as you can imagine by the title of the book parallel universes one could look at that and say well geez you know this, this guy led a couple of 
parallel lives, right? He yeah. had this parallel life with his adopted family and his, his, the family that he helped create, but there was this other life that was going on unbeknownst to him with regard to his genetic heritage. And that's, that's ultimately what we're talking about here. So these people, right, who, from which I, I genetically descended, had no, no knowledge of me for the most part. In, in, in a rare exception, there, there, there was one or two individuals who knew, but most of those people had departed as my parents had passed and, and the, the story and the narrative had ended, right? But, but when I came back into their lives, I, 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 was, I was not coming in because I thought that I wanted a relationship with these human beings, that they needed to, to make me whole. I, I was trying to enter that scenario just initially to get some health history, Right, to get some control over the process, right? To to look for information that not only was factual but perhaps even contextual. What, mm-hmm. what was the context in which my parents abandoned me? What what, what was the context in which is these other families grew and had perfectly what I assumed to be normal lives, which turned out not to be, while I had this other life where I, where I struggled. What, what did that all look like? So so coming into their lives, I, I had the feeling, you know, I, I'm doing something untoward here this this is wrong right i i'm, I'm burdening these people right mm-hmm. i don't have the right to burden them with this right it, it, it was it's like what one might consider a, the caveat in a ninth step amend in the 12-step program right i i have the right to get my my health history except when it may harm others well yeah. am i harming others by my presence and to me that's that's one of the ultimate definitions of shame right I'm, how can i believe that something is so wrong with me how can i believe that spiritual axi- spiritual axiom that that i have a role in this when all i'm trying to do is, is to attach to the facts of my existence right and who knew who knew who knew how these other people were going to react but society had taught us that it was going to be an imposition, right? that, that, you, that you were supposed to have just assimilated into this other family and everyone was going to live happily ever after. But, of course, not by choice of mine. That came out not to be the way that things worked out. And, and people do have doors shut in their face, right, when they approach uh, either their adoptive parents, their adoptive children, their uh, uh, biological siblings. Um, you know, the fears you had were not unrealistic. That's correct. And without giving away a lot of the detail in the book, what I can tell you is that it's very difficult to understand what one's expectations are into going into this, right? I mean, this all started for me as a result of a medical examination, but it became so much more. It actually became very clear that it was part of my identity that I needed to fill in as many blanks as I could for, but but I could never even consider how it might affect others, right? But the sister who was initially looking for me actually wanted to find me. She wanted a big brother. I mean, that never even occurred to me. Like, yeah. That never even occurred to me that she had a parallel path that she too was living. I was part of that unknown parallel path. Mm-hmm. I had another sister who is was so triggered by the memories of her upbringing, by the mother that we shared who passed away, that she has not been able to bring herself to speak with me because I am a reminder of that horrific time in her life because that, that, that's the way it worked for her. So there, there are, you asked a great question, there are all of these dynamics going on that need to be put into context to be reconciled. And then you and I have talked about this before, right? And so what I'm talking about here is context. This is not about 
finality. This is not about closure. On these parallel paths, if we're looking for closure, I think we have a mistaken expectation, and we know what, what mistaken expectations do. They cause premeditated resentment. So so <laughs> the expectation is, is to go through a process, and that process unto itself is going to be what's helpful. If I'm looking for closure, I'm foolish. What I better find is context, and that context is ultimately what has saved me. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, yeah, again, there is no uh, spiking the football, let the credits roll, right? It just exactly, <laughs> exactly. And there's, there will always be more facts to be revealed, right? And this, this, this just doesn't go. This just doesn't end. This is the gift that keeps giving. My children, who are my biological children, are going to be blessed or cursed with this going forward. They too are going to have to do their own investigation of that parallel path going forward. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mention in the book, but you really only touch on it, because, um, I mean, this process helped make you a better addiction counselor. Now, uh, why did you become an addiction counselor? It wasn't like you needed a job, you needed the money, was it? (laughs) No, at that time I did not. As a matter of fact, I had a successful private practice, life coaching practice that I was very much enjoying, and... um, doing similar things, as it turned out, that one might do as an addiction counselor. But, yeah, I was not looking for a different career. Um, And to make a long story short, I I had been about three years sober. I had gone out east to uh, my son's college where he played varsity football. At the halftime of one of his games, I ran into a local treatment center owner um, who I'd introduced myself to, and he basically said, well, geez, I know who you are. Um, by the way, did you know that your son volunteers in our facility? I said, well, gosh, no, I, I didn't know that. And he said, by the way, I, I know who you are. I've seen your writing. I've read your blog. I know the life coaching that you do. I said, great. And we had a nice little conversation. I had no expectations except that, that I was very close and, and uh, to recovery and treatment at that time and wanted to learn more. And he asked me right at the end of our visit, he said, how often do you come out here? I said, well, I, I come visit for every home game. He said, you know, there's a home game in two weeks. I said, yeah. I smiled at him, and I saw where this was going. He said, yes, I'm, I'm well aware of that. I said, why do, why do you remark that way? He said, well, I own a 90-bed treatment center in addition to this outpatient facility I have here in town. What we do is we treat criminal justice referrals from Manhattan. We're a, a minimum nine-month program, and I'd like you to come out and talk to our patients the next time you're in town. I said, I'd, you know, thank you for, for that offer. I, you never turned down a recovery, recovery request. That's what I was taught. So I'd be happy to talk to your people. And I did, just as a gut check, I said, well, you want me to talk about my experience, strength, and hope and recovery, right? He said, no, I want you to come out here and I want you to tell these people how they can start changing their lives today. And it was then that I thought, oh my gosh, here we go, right? Fasten your seatbelts because up until that time, I had guarded and treasured my recovery in a very concrete way. I was very protective of my recovery, and I didn't want that boundary to cross into my life coaching practice. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't want to corrupt one with the other. Right? I didn't want to bring those values into life coaching to people who I didn't know that could benefit from the message. At the same time, I didn't want to dilute my recovery in a way that it wasn't going to benefit me and keep me alive. So I, anyway, I came out two weeks later, and I spoke to these people, and they were wonderful people. It was well-received. Um, they, they were very cordial and giving me a standing ovation, their applause, and, and and afterwards, I got the opportunity to talk to several of them individually, and, and many of them were inspired. And it was at that time that I started to consider, well, maybe there's something here. And the owner of the treatment facility basically told me, he said, listen, you know, um, you're great at this, and you should really consider doing this. Um, 
he had no idea what the thought process I had been going through with regard to my recovery versus my professional life. And literally, within a week, after a couple of core conversations with him, I had investigated graduate schools. I had found a graduate school to attend so that I could get my master's of addiction studies and get into this business and then start counseling people. And it was just that quick. It was literally a week after that football game and five weeks later I was enrolled in grad school on, on this path to becoming an addiction professional. And and what what about now that you're an author and you're back to uh, coaching? Uh, where what, what do you see in your foreseeable future? Well, that's a great question. You know, what, what, what I, you know, I'm at that point in my career where I love the work that I do but I see that there's a lot more to be done. Anyone who knows anything about addiction, about human nature, about resilience knows there's always plenty of work to be done and either not enough people to do it or not enough funding to do it. So although I've treasured my time in, in formal treatment settings, I'm more focused now on that aftercare function, that recovery management. What happens after people have had formal encounters with a health system? What happens after people have made these decisions that they need to make some changes in their lives? How do we support them? So towards that end, that's where I'm focusing my efforts now. And and that can be any number of people. That could be people who struggle to fit into a 12-step fellowship because of their secular beliefs. It could be people who have lived with shame all of their lives and they don't know how to enter a system that, that although understands trauma-informed treatment, might not understand how deeply rooted some of that toxic shame is in some individuals. So so, so that, that, that's ultimately my goal is, is, is to operate in the, the field of, of resilience as it relates to abandonment, as it relates to addiction, as it relates to recovery, as it relates to individuals trying to overcome major obstacles in their lives that for some reason they've been powerless to do something about in the past. I want to say one of the things I really enjoyed um, is you are clearly uh, a skeptic. You are a rational. The power greater than yourself that guides you is living in reality and, and to whatever extent you have to have faith in reality. And uh, but still, you are not a sort of obtuse reductionist. Uh, you quote a Velveteen Rabbit and um, uh, sort of fiction that, that really talks about uh, like the intuitive side of life and wellness as opposed to just the rational side as well. You also mention on your quest to um, sort of find your to rationalize this sort of mid or early twentieth century idea of addiction and recovery in the sort of theistic language that some of the AA literature does. You were inspired by uh, uh, Maria Hornbacker's book uh, Waiting. I mean this as a, a compliment in every way. Uh, you seem to draw some inspiration from that book in your own writing uh, in terms of it bringing, uh, you know, some of what you say is very graphic, very raw, very real, but still very uh, poetic. And one of the things I enjoy about her writing is uh, she has a, a poetry uh, to her uh, uh, sober reasoning. I will take that as the compliment that was met. Thank you. I, I, I try to I try to evolve a philosophy of living that incorporates any number of disciplines, but also any number of attitudes and, and, and other philosophies. And what I think we know as human beings is that we might not remember exactly what somebody says, but we remember 
how we felt when they said it. And that's exactly the way I feel about Maria Heinbacher's book. She talked about a program of recovery, and she related a lot to the 12 steps in a way that gave me permission to consider other alternatives, to consider that there are other ways to, to conceptualize things, not only in the way that they were typically written about in those fellowships, mm-hmm. but that there was a way to do that. I, I relate that to a time I, I encountered, I had an experience with a therapist once, an Ivy League educated therapist who I was really looking forward to speaking to, and, and within five minutes of speaking with her, I had related to her where I was. I was in this existential quandary, right? I was being taught, what I believed I was being taught in a 12-step fellowship was mm-hmm. that if I couldn't turn it over to God or God as a higher power as I understood him, I was going to drink and I was going to die. And within five minutes of the discussion, she looked at me and she said, maybe you're not meant to believe that. And it just totally threw my world into a tizzy. It was chaos, but it was that beautiful chaos from which came a deep immersion into these philosophies and readings of other people. Right? I read them in a different way. I, I read them with a more maybe critical, but also poetic eye, right? I, 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 was, yeah. I was now able to read between the lines of the tone of what was written, not just, not just the words. And I think to me, in my evolution, that was huge, right? Because I am a literalist, right? I, I, I am a concrete thinker. I am, I am a mathematician. My, my previous career was, was, was in definites, right? I, so being able to do that has become very powerful for me. And as a matter of fact, I have started reading poetry. The lyrics of songs have started to mean different things to me than they ever met before. They've taken on this new profound meaning <laughs> because of the tone. And what, what they're able to do is to set that emotion, right? So, so you, you, you talked about, you started talking about not being a reductionist, right? And that's my approach, right? Life is very complex. Yeah. It takes more than a bullet point answer to get to a solution. However, there are lyrics, one-line lyrics and songs that can bring that emotion so powerfully out that it opens up the door to allow us to do that analysis. And that's what Maria's book and so many other books have done. That's, Joe, by the way, what, what your daily meditation book does for me when I read it. It is so packed with that type of powerful emotion, not just information and not just contemplation, but that emotion that allows me to go to a different space that I ordinarily couldn't have done on my own. Yeah, well, I was uh, blessed to be uh, a rationalist for sure, but a, a music fan. <laughs> so uh, m- music understands the, that life is between the ones and the zeros. And, and, and if you can't see that space, you know, uh, you're missing out in half of life at least. Um, now, do, do you read any of the uh, sort of critical... Uh, sort of critiques on the treatment industry itself. I mean, there's the Lance Dotuses, of course. There's the more optimistic Bill Whites. Uh, uh, ha- have you read um, Anne Fletcher's uh, books, uh, Sober for Good or Inside mm-hmm. Rehab? Mm-hmm. I have. I've read all of that. And, and what looks to me... I shouldn't say what looks to me, what, what sometimes is, is characterized by the world in which we live in as some really edgy things, I think, are making very similar points. Now, now as it relates to the treatment industry, I want to be very careful. Mm-hmm. A lot of the writings that I've encountered, and I'm not going to call anybody out on them, but a lot of the writings I've encountered somehow characterizes AA or 12-step recovery as treatment. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, as a licensed clinician, the mm-hmm. director of addiction services of a major behavioral health hospital recently, AA is not treatment. 
AA is, is, is something different than treatment. Treatment involves treatment plans, a, a multidisciplinary team of individuals to help you achieve your goals. Yes, one could say AA is that way in so many ways, but 12-step fellowships are not treatment. They're, they are fellowships and an aftercare program that is supportive of an individual's desire to, to not drink or to not use their chemicals. So I have to be very careful with that. If, if I remember that, and I would suggest that other people might look upon things with that eye too, there's a lot of great information coming out in all of these books. Yeah. All of these books, this notion that that addiction is a disease of lack of connection has a very profound basis in it. Now, it's not, again, it's not as simple as that. Right? It's based on some rat experiments where some rats were placed in a cage and they were given water that was laced with cocaine and they were isolated in that cage when they did it and oftentimes the rat would drink the cocaineated water they would ultimately keep drinking it until they died. Well, they, they learned later that if you put that very rat in a community of other healthy rats, they lost interest in the cocaine-laced water very early, and they thrived, right? They, they, they had resilience, and they thrived. And I think that's a great lesson. There is a lot to be said about community. And ultimately, in my book, that's what the 12-step fellowships do best. They offer that, that accepting community in which people can do the work that we're talking about here. What I would say, however, is that that notion does not give enough credence to the fact that that level of connection can be disrupted by any number of things. It can be disrupted by having been abandoned as a baby. It can be disrupted by having a traumatic experience, sexual abuse, physical abuse, any number of things. PTSD happened later in life. It could be interrupted by any number of developmental interruptions that, it, that occurs to human beings. It can actually prohibit people from connecting in that healthy way. So it's a very responsible comment to make. It's a great analogy. And yes, we should be aware of it, but we should also be aware of the way that people are prevented or unable to make that connection rather than turning this into a shameful thing saying, well, all you need to do is connect. All the science is, is too much. We just need to connect you. So we have to be very careful about that. But I, I think this is a really exciting time. I mean, I think that the discussion happening in the substance use or behavioral use disorder realm is exciting. Mm -hmm. And we're at a new place of understanding that, that we, we haven't been um, in our lifetimes. And in the short 12 years that I've been in this business, um, the, the knowledge and understanding and, and more importantly, the discussion, the contemplation and the questioning of, of what do we think we know is ultimately very healthy for everybody involved. Can you share a little bit about what it's like to be uh, a first time author? Now, you've done plenty of writing, plenty of blogging. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're a prolific writer but uh you know some of the some of your expectations that you found out to be true some of your expectations that you found out to be incorrect what was your sort of a transformative experience of of writing this book that's a great question and i and i've tried to quantify this in as many ways as i possibly can because this is one of those i don't have a, a neat tidy little one-line answer for you ultimately you know, I started to write this book to, to better know myself because that's what I needed to do. I had these parallel universes, which what I would describe as parallel selves that were not assimilated or in, in integrated in any way, and I need to do this work to better know myself. So I, I, ultimately what that means is I had to investigate how my experiences played in not only 
my present day, but how did they play out in my past and how are they going to play out in my future? So that, that was the exercise that I went to. And it was, it was, this was a deep exercise. I mean, gosh, Joe, I have to tell you, it, it is asking somebody who has had a split sense of self to write a memoir is again, one of those, the world's largest existential dilemmas, right? Wait a minute, you want me to tell the world about myself when I haven't even been confident as to who I am or how I'm, I, while I'm still discovering who I am in this very day? Holy cow, they, you know, they, I'm gonna be scrutinized. And guess what, you know, that shame that played out throughout my life, these people are ultimately gonna affirm what I've been suspicious of all the time. They're going to tell me that there's something wrong with me. And it's not just that there's something wrong with me, right? This is how the intricacy of the thought gets. We're often taught, and, and, and this is correct, and Brene Brown popularized this, this saying, mm-hmm. you know, guilt is about what we've done. Shame is about who we are. And, and that is absolutely true, but I think it's incomplete. Because my thought process goes through this, and this relates directly to your question, because I'm putting myself out there for the world to see, right? So the, so the shame component in my life is that, okay, there's something wrong with me, right? You were relinquished as a child. Something must have been wrong with you. And despite the fact that you have the realism to... to deconstruct that thought and know that's not true, it is wired into your brain so that you automatically default to that. There's something wrong with you. Not only is there something wrong with me, but everybody else is aware of it, except for me. Everybody can see it. So when I'm trying to be authentic and I'm trying to be myself, I'm at risk of showing them that there's something wrong with me and they're going to see it and I'm not. Not only controls my behavior, but it, but it makes me forget that I'm being limited by this, this flaw in myself. Something's even more wrong with me. And that will ultimately lead to behavior that humiliates me publicly and irreparably. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that's the notion that one who's dealt with stuts, toxic shame gets. So, so would I tell someone to go write a memoir and publish it to the world and they're going to get healthier as a result? Boy, that wouldn't be my advice to anybody. But I have to tell you that the process of doing that has done exactly that for me. Investigating this and putting myself out that there's, there's no more secrets, right? Some people in 12-step fellowships would... would talk about the notion of us, our secrets keeping us sick. Mm-hmm. So I am not going to pretend anymore that I don't have these secrets. I'm not going to pretend anymore that I'm, a, I'm not a flawed human being. Yes, I can present myself very professionally and, and very supportively in the world, but guess what? I, I have these things going on under the surface, under that facade that we talked about earlier, the facade of living this great life, professional, successful life, but drinking myself to death in my basement office every day, right? So, so that's been the process of writing this memoir, and I can tell you it has been one of the most freeing experiences I can imagine. And it wasn't just one event. It's not just that it's being published. It's the process. It's the process of being clear. So now what ultimately, Joe, here's what it comes down to. That long-winded answer to your very short question basically tells me this. I am willing to have my thoughts, my experiences, and my philosophies vetted by the world. And that is the most freeing thing. By publishing this work, and I think you said it really well in a previous conversation, we had a, a casual conversation. We had, you know, once you publish that work, it's no longer yours. It's theirs for everybody else. So mm-hmm. ultimately, it's allowed me to be this catalyst, right, this accelerant of an idea, of a thought process that I hope to participate in, but I put it out to the world now. Uh, how did you come to find uh, Hensel House, your publisher, and what was the sort of editing relationship? Were you sort of uh, on your own, or uh, was there a dance between you and, uh, uh, you know, some sort of editing influence? Sure, sure. Great question. Well, 
you know, when I first was in the process of writing the book, before I finished, I had visions of taking it to some of the, the leading recovery publishing houses or some of the main street publishing houses. And I actually went through a very deep exercise with an accountability partner and writer writing proposals and, and writing queries and doing all the things that are natural. And as I was going through that process, it occurred to me, David, you're not a writer and you don't want to be a writer. And what that basically meant is, yes, I am a writer because I, I've written this memoir and I've shared my experiences, my strength and my hope, but I don't, I don't see myself in that mold. I, I, I didn't want to become a blogger. I didn't want to do all the things that someone, quote unquote, who went through a publishing house was expected to do. Yeah. I, what I wanted it to be is just a, a discussion partner. I wanted to be that catalyst, that, mm-hmm. that accelerant that I talked about a moment ago in, in this space. So as I was talking about my book with these other publishing houses, I got to the point where I wasn't as enthusiastic as I was when I had written the letter, and I think that came out. So I got a handful of rejections, which is not atypical, and mm-hmm. I, I, they didn't necessarily slow me down. As a matter of fact, what they actually did is they validated my concern or validated my thought that, yeah, you know, maybe you're not like the writer. Maybe you don't want to be like that, that popular best-selling writer. Maybe there's something more to this. And that led me back to my local community. One of the things that I did when I went away from school is I, I professed that I always wanted to come home and share what I learned. And I happened to live in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, the southeastern part of the state. Mm-hmm. And um, Hensel House happens to exist here. So I was able to actually go and meet with the owner and mm-hmm. editor of Henschel House and all of her team and talk about this and talk about how important this was. And ultimately what she did is she validated me. She said, I get this. I get this. You are, in fact, coming at this from a different perspective than some other authors. And we need to make sure that we are true to that message and that feeling that you put forth. And, and ultimately, that, that's why I chose them. And it's been an incredible process. I, I consider these people not just expert in their field, and that's why I've, I've partnered with them, but they're accountability partners. They are there to call me and vet me on these theories that I'm putting forth, these philosophies that I swear work in my life that I hope will be more generalizable to the others. And ultimately, they, core, they call me on my core value, and that value is integrity. Yeah. Right? I, 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 they, they help me to stay incorruptible. They help me to be sound and to feel sound, and they help me to feel complete in the sense that I know I'm doing the work that I need to continue to, to gain context in my life. So it's been an incredible relationship because they get me. I understand this is a dangerous place for a recovering person to come from because there's always that terminal uniqueness that steps in and says, wait a minute, you're not different than everybody else. Well, yes, we are. We're all different from yeah. everybody else. We share, some, we share some common perils that bond us together, but we are individuals, and, and this was was a publishing house and some individuals who worked within that house who understood that and and I am very confident that they are going to treat my audience with respect no matter what happens as a result of that understanding. Uh, Amelia Chester and uh, Joan, my I, I had two editors, and uh, they both came at this from a different perspective, and uh, it had to pass both of their desks. Uh, to make the grade, but ultimately there were some conflicts that I insisted, and they said, okay, fine, and, uh, but we had the discussion. Uh, but uh, an unsung hero was uh, Lisa, my partner, a lawyer by trade, so she's no cheerleader. She's not a, oh, Joe, I love everything you write, it's so dreamy. Uh, she, would, <laughs> <laughs> she would say things like, you say this, Joe, as if it's a fact. Is it? 
<laughs> Where's the evidence, right? And yeah, so she uh, well said. She definitely made me a better writer. That's for sure. <laughs> well said. You know, isn't that isn't that ironic, right? That, that's a lesson I've, I've learned um, in staying alive, right? I mean, I, there were when I was that quote unquote successful guy back in the day. There are lots of people who had a vested interest in keeping me happy. Let's not rock the boat. Let's keep them happy. This can be fun if if, if we don't ruin this, right? Let's not ruin this. But the fact of the matter is. Is I don't need people who blow smoke up my ass, right? Which is which is literally a term for for telling me something that isn't true. I need people who are going to hold me accountable, just like Lisa held you accountable. Yeah. My 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 editor did that. My publisher did that. My wife, who's an English major, did the same thing. Yeah. My wife is the greatest accountability partner I have in my life, and without her reading this every step of the way and questioning things, did it really happen that way, or is that your warped perspective yeah, of what yeah. happened? And I'm jokingly saying that, but that that ultimately is cuts right through the chase, right? That that's the way ideas are better and I, I needed people to do that and I will continue to need people in my life to help me with that. That is a lot. That's all we have time for today. Just to be fair to people have to get on with their lives. Uh, you know you know how you and I are. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. We, we can yeah. keep talking for the rest of the day. Um, but uh, can we do a follow up? Maybe a year from now we can do what I learned from the publishing industry. Absolutely, I'd enjoy that very much. And uh, I, 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 I wouldn't have you on if it wasn't a uh, five-star uh, recommendation to anybody who is in the Rebellion Dogs uh, audience. Um, I, I can see it as a book being uh, used as a subject matter in, uh, in some meetings, be they AA or otherwise. It's a very versatile book, and uh, I'm sure other people's imagination will find ways to uh, make use of this resource uh, that, that you didn't even think about. Uh, I don't know how many this will matter to, but those who it will matter to, it's going to matter a lot. Joe, th thank you for having me on. I, I certainly appreciate it. I appreciate all that you do. As a matter of fact, for some reason, as, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about a song that you had highlighted at the end of one of your previous podcasts, probably some time ago, mm -hmm. um, called Chronic Malcontent. Yeah. I love the way you string together some, some, some universal ideas, and that one has always stuck with me. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. And I, too, like you, feel similarly. I hope that there are people out there who will simply ask them this, this question, who am I? And they're going to get something very useful out of this, if, if only a discussion about who they are. Just one last yeah. thing, how uh, can people who are listening and driving or, uh, you know, uh, can't go immediately to the internet, what's the best way to get a hold of you or they your book? They can reach me at davidbohl.com. So that's David, middle initial B, B-O-H-L.com. Fantastic. Take care. You too. Bye now. discontent and I contend that that's a lot you seem preoccupied that I don't appear quite at ease it's just the way I am it's not a disease so that little musical ditty is a wee bit of chronic malcontent 
the indie recording act that I'm part of called The Chronicles, as requested by David. I, I got this other new artist just found, really like it, and uh, so what am I going to do? I'm going to play this. This is a song I recently played on my Indie Can radio show that plays on Sirius XM. The artist is called Rochester, otherwise known as Juice, a Toronto uh, R&B rapper. The song's called Grateful. You can find links to this music, to David's publisher, and his Amazon page at rebelliondogsradio.com. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Wake up in the morning, pour my drinking cup Then I smile at the mirror like, that's what's up God trust, bad luck won't last forever Thank you for what I got before I ask for better Good friends, a ceiling, some beautiful children A talent when used is a beautiful feeling and Beautiful women wanna come to my building uh, Can't let them in cause I be chasing a million uh, Yes, I uh, built an empire No Lucius Lion, I am what I am I keep the fire burning, yearning Working like a brand new furnace No man can turn that means I won't switch Love for my fam, that means I won't snitch Some man's hot, they burn their own bridge Take God's gifts and just squander it I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful Gotta thank God for the strength he gave you Cherish every fall, every score that graced you Still showing love even when they hate you, man I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful I'm so grateful Fresh like princess, smarter than Carlton Me and Waste ain't got much in common Work so hard, got hands like a farmer Took days off to take care of daughter All things in order, what's your priority? Me, my family, it always come first like pubescentine Chef in the pot, I got recipe Make girl lick the spoon, that spoon next to me uh, Life sweet, life sweet, life sweet But you gotta stay clean or guarantee I might have a dream, I roll up a tree but still get to work cause the fam gotta eat, uh Well never see through all tragedies Man, I stuck to my quest like a leash I hate. I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful Gotta thank God for the strength he gave you Cherish every fall, every score that graced you Still showing love even when they hate you, man I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful I'm so grateful Cherish every fall, every score that graced you Still showing love